Please open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 15 as we take a few minutes to prepare our hearts to come to this table together in this service. It's always a special service for us, isn't it? Last time we were here was in the Christmas season and we'll be coming back to this table again um, on Good Friday, that our Good Friday communion service. But I'm so excited here in the heart of winter <clears throat> to be coming to this yet again with you and been praying for this for some time. It's a special time. You understand that we are invited to this table. And it's with good reason. Who sends out the invites? Jesus Christ. Baptist theologian Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, gets really practical at this moment. And he marvels that we, you and I, have been invited to this table. He writes these words, When I come at Christ's invitation to the Lord's Supper, the fact that he has invited me into his presence assures that he has abundant blessings for me. In this supper, I am actually eating and drinking at a foretaste of the great banquet table of the king. I come to his table as a member of his eternal family. When the Lord welcomes me to this table, he assures me that he will welcome me to all the other blessings of earth and heaven as well, and especially to the great marriage supper of the Lamb, at which a place has been reserved for me. End quote. My heart resonates with the words of Dr. Grudem. Jesus has prescribed that we observe this table. And he does so in his word. In a few moments from that table, I will read these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is explaining what exactly is going on here and, and what he's giving to us there is revelation directly to him from Jesus. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you. And listen to this next phrase. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember that? Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as we mentioned in December, we are told by Jesus to do this in remembrance of him. You say, what does that mean? It means Jesus wants us on a regular basis, in essence, to remember what he did because of who he was. That's the prescription. So that begs the question that gave birth to a series that we launched last time we were at this table together in December. And the series is, well, who is he? If, we, if, he, if he did this because of who he is, who is he? And we found last month, and we'll find throughout the whole series of 
the Lord's table uh, throughout this year, that the Gospel of John is extremely helpful in nailing down his identity, who he is. It's the theme of the Gospel. John shows his hand in, in the end of his Gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. John says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John says, I wrote my gospel so you'd know who Jesus is. And he says, it's not only that, but John records eight sign miracles. Eight miracles that remove any doubt as to who Jesus was in his earthly ministry. Now he says at the end of his gospel, now there are many more signs that he did, many more miracles, but these have been recorded so you'll know who he is. As a matter of fact, several times in this gospel, John also says, records Jesus saying that I am who I claim to be, the Son of God, not only because of what I do, but because of what I say. Believe the words and believe the works. They're telling the same message. They're giving the answer to who I am. So John's gospel is very helpful to us. I mean, if we're supposed to do this in remembrance of him, in other words, what he did because of who he is, then it's extremely helpful to us. But one other way that the gospel of John is helping us have clarity on who Jesus is is comprised of the seven I am statements that John records Jesus stating. And this is where J Jesus himself says, I am, ego, ami. I, that's that's going to throw the listeners and the reader's mind back to the Old Testament, and I am. In itself, there's the ring and the clarity of deity there. But there are seven statements that John records Jesus saying. In chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 10, verses 7 and following, he says, I am the door of the sheep. Again in chapter 10, verse 11 and following, he says, I am the good shepherd. And we continue to press through the gospel. It says in chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And we go into John chapter 14 and verse 6, and we see another one that we know so well. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We saw in December, when we came to this table last, that Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. But the one that grips me this morning as we prepare our hearts for this table is one of his statements about a plant. You're going to see it here in John chapter 15. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine. And again down in verse 5. I am the vine. I am the vine. You know, what will be our takeaway from this statement of who Jesus self-identifies himself as? He says, I am the vine. It's going to communicate to us very clearly as we come to this table that we thrive because of the life of Jesus. For all seven statements during this series of Lord's Tables, I am statements, 
We're using the same outline just to prepare our hearts. This is the outline reflected on your handout you received as you came in. We're answering a when question, we're answering a what question, and we're answering a how question. The when question has everything to do with the context that Jesus is in when he makes these statements. The what question has everything to do with the content. What does that statement, that I am statement, mean? And then the how question answers where we'll end up at that point, and that is how does this I am statement of Jesus prepare us for this table? First of all, I want you to consider the context. When was this statement uttered? Your Bible's in John 15 right now. I'll go back a page to John chapter 13. And follow along as I read the first few verses here. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper. And he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. We're answering the context question here. What is, when was this statement uttered? I've received uh, one, two, three, four, I think I've received five either personal comments or emails or text messages about something that happened here at church last night. Don't worry, it was all good. Pastor Michael and Maddie had organized the youth staff and other volunteers and the youth group to put on a Class A Valentine's banquet. You heard us announce it. If you weren't there, um, I guess you really missed it. I missed it. My wife and I weren't able to be in attendance. But the people that I'm hearing from are like, no, this, this wasn't just a youth activity. This was amazing. The decorations, the thoughtfulness, the food, the intentionality of everything right down to a seating chart. Uh, the communication and, and fellowship that was happening at the tables. The embarrassing information we learned about other members of our church. And on and on and on the compliments are going. You know, I, those people are saying to me, and they would say to you if you weren't in attendance, you know, in, our, in your mind's eye, we want to explain everything as you look around Fellowship Hall last night. I mean, the curtains were, uh, uh, were over the railing on the balcony to add a classic look to it. The, all the lights were off except for the balcony lights and then candlelight. And then look over at the windows. The, 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 uh, the window coverings were, were covering the, the light coming in from outside to create just amazing atmosphere. There were beautiful centerpieces with floating candles. There were teens in, in dress shirts serving the table. You just... 
they just try to get you to look around the room and note how awesome the event was. We, we need to do that in John 13 this morning to set this context. In John chapter 13, as we arrive here, we are in what has been called the upper room. I wasn't there. So I'm going to let John point out to me what's going on, and you as well. It's very important we get this context. Look around. Six or seven things stand out to me. As you look around this upper room, you're going to have to imagine something there that wasn't there. It was a clock. They didn't have clocks back then, right? Well, I guess they did, so, you know, using the sun. Work with me here. I'm talking about a clock What's on the back wall here with the date on it and everything, if you had that option. Say, why do we have to imagine a clock? Because you need to know when this is happening. It's happening on Thursday night of this particular week. The streets outside are, are quiet because, well, all the Jews are in homes, some sharing their homes with only their family, others with pilgrims and guests to observe the Passover meal. Whatever's going on in John 13, by the time, of course, we finish the Passover meal, it's dark outside. The sun has set. There's light in the room, but the only light in the room is coming from oil lamps, which immediately creates an intimate setting, dimly lit. Don't just look at the imaginary clock as you look around that room. I want you to also notice the borrowed furnishings. No one in this room in this moment owns this room or anything in the room. It's Jesus and his disciples. Luke in chapter 22 gives us a story how this came together. Jesus told uh, Peter and John to go um, secure the room and they'll find a man with, carrying a pitcher on his head. Remember that story? And, and he, he, is, he tells his disciples to follow the man to this place and they'd find a furnished room at I believe it was a prearranged situation with a, a follower of his, perhaps. I think there's argument for that. But they're in a room that's not theirs. It's a borrowed room with borrowed furnishings. I also want you to note something else in this upper room. There's, there's an empty basin. We just read what that was. Uh, that wasn't a basin where the disciples washed their feet when they came in from outside, it was a basin that Jesus had just used. There's a towel draped over it that he was wearing. And the disciples' feet had just been washed. That's the basin Jesus used and the towel. As you continue to look around this upper room, you're going to notice what we would call dirty dishes. Because it won't be long, a few verses in, and we are past supper, the Passover meal had been consume and there is a, a real significance to this Passover meal I believe it's the it's the final Passover meal before our Lord reinstitutes something called his table in those moments according to Luke's gospel again we've studied that so it's after the meal if you keep looking around the room <clears throat> strangely there's an empty chair now that empty chair was inhabited by a man by the name of Judas. But we won't even get out of this chapter before Judas leaves the room. 
and his leaving of the room will touch off a quickly sequencing string of events that will conclude with his entrance within a day to hell. Keep looking around this room. You see a tender guy. I mean, all these guys are roughshod and fishermen, and they can live in the wild if they need to. They're used to, uh, to, to transversing even deserts. There's one guy that stands out as a very tender guy. And though at one point he was thunderous like his brother, Jesus had tempered him. Who is this tender guy? It's the author of this gospel, Judas. I'm sorry, the author of this gospel, it's John. And we find him in this scene actually touching Jesus. You can see it here in verse 23 of chapter 13. It says, There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John, again, placing himself in his own gospel narrative. This tender man. You also see another man as you look around this room. Just one more I want to point out to you. I'll call this one the nervous guy. There's a guy that's very nervous there. He's not Judas. By the time we get to the end of this chapter, Judas is gone. It's a nervous guy named Peter. We find Peter in the intimate lighting of that room with a tender disciple even touching Jesus. It's Peter who is on high alert. Something's up. He's jumpy. And he's still waiting for yet another opportunity to declare his undying loyalty, his ferocious fidelity to Jesus. He was also on the side printing T-shirts reading, I'm the greatest in the kingdom. This is Peter. Look at him in verses 36 and 37 in this room. John chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, Peter, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I, of all the guys here, I'm the one who will lay down my life for you. Yeah, that's the nervous guy. That's the upper room as you look around. That's the context. That's, those are the moments that this statement is going to be spoken in. I'll point out one more reality here as you take in the context. By the time we get to the end of chapter 14, most Bible students believe that this meeting that started in the upper room is going to be a mobile meeting through chapters 15, 16, and 17. I think there's good reason to go with that view. Because when you get to the end of chapter 14, look verse 31. Jesus is speaking, and we'll pick him up midstream here. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And look at this last phrase in the chapter. Get up. Let us go from here. You say, did they actually start leaving the room at that point? I think there was movement and preparation. Maybe the next chapter, maybe a few verses, or maybe the next chapter or two is them packing things up, 
but they are beginning now to be on the move away from that upper room. I believe that because by the time we get to the, to the end of what we call the upper room discourse for chapters 13 through 17, look at how chapter 18 starts. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. It could be that he started packing up at the end of chapter 14, and by the time we get to chapter 18, verse 1, they are already on the road. The upper room is behind them and their journey, and they're coming actually outside of Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley with which they'll, they'll cross over that valley and climb into the Mount of Olives. could be that the whole prayer of, verse, of chapter 17 is on, while they're on the move. As they would have left the upper room to begin this short journey to the east side of the city of Jerusalem and out of the city, they would have no doubt walked by or within eye view of the temple complex. Scholars and archaeologists teach us that there would have been on that complex at different places ornate depictions of all things vines. And also by as they walked down the road past dwelling places it was not uncommon to have vines there near the um, near the actual front doors of many private residences. They would have seen a lot of vines. Interesting. The streets were still quiet because for the most part the population was on the back side of the observance of the Passover meal. People were inside for the most part, not outside. It's a still night, which, by the way, will be broken. The stillness will be broken. The darkness will be pierced by between 300 and 600 Roman guards just a little bit longer into the future that evening. But for now, there's stillness. It's in these very moments that Jesus gives his last, his final, of the recorded seven I am statements. Look with me at chapter 15. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, he lifts up. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. He, he removes the waste so that it may bear more fruit. You, disciples, you 11 that are left with me now, you are already pruned because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. 
For apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, I am the true vine. I think there's a a whole study that can go in at this point of how Israel had failed as the Lord's vineyard in the Old Testament. The nation had ceased giving the life-giving light to the nations because of their apostasy. And Jesus says, I won't fail the same way. I'm the true vine. But I want to I bring this to a very concise, important moment at this table. I am the true vine is going to communicate to you three realities about Jesus. And it's important you get these three realities about Jesus down because these three realities about Jesus are also three important realities about you. Let me say it this way. More about us, about us together as we come to this table. What are these three realities? First of all, this phrase, I am the true vine, speaks to the exclusivity of life in the Son. The exclusivity of life in the Son. Jesus is just saying this. He's saying, I am the source of your life. You don't have eternal life, 11 disciples who have it. You don't have it because you were religious. You don't have it because of your good works. No one has eternal life coursing through their being because, well, because of the trellis that holds the vine. It's because of a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And this is how John comes out of the gate as he introduces his gospel. In the opening words in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he says, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, that's a word, a name for Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that's come into being. Any questions? And then listen to verse 4. Listen to this short verse that's pregnant with meaning. He says, in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. When Jesus says, I am the vine, he's reaffirming the fact, he's declaring the fact yet again on the eve of his betrayal that all life, eternal life enjoyed by those who are his is sourced in him. No one else, nothing else, ever. When he says, I am the vine, he's talking of the exclusivity of life, exclusivity of life in the Son. That beloved verse tells the story, doesn't it? John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That other I am statement that we're going to study later this year, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I've got to pause right here. Have to. 
And I have to ask you a question whether this is your 40th year in this room or your first hour in this room. Do you have eternal life? John's going to write in his epistle, he who has the Son has the life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. And at some point, you will fall away. Because it says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from among us and it might be made known that they were not really of us. It's just a matter of time. Do you have the life in the Son? I'm not asking how many times you've read the Bible through, what degrees you have. I'm not asking who your favorite teacher is. I'm asking, do you have the life of the Son? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Because left to yourself, you're left in death. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Christ fully absorbed the wrath of God for those who will believe in him. Have you believed? I am the true vine. What does that speak of? Well, the first reality is the exclusivity of life in the Son. I am the vine. I give life to what comes out of me. Branches. He says, I am the vine, and you, 11 disciples who believe in me truly, you're the branches. What's the second reality that this statement makes? The second reality is this. It's the guarantee of fruit in the Son. Not only the exclusivity of life in the Son, but the guarantee of fruit for those who are in the Son. You and I can say, I asked Jesus into my heart. I know I'm saved, but there's no fruit in our lives. I went to a Christian school, but there's no fruit in your life. Guess what? If there's no fruit, and listen, no concern that there's no fruit, you're not in the Son. Because if you're in the sun, or to use this picture of our Lord, our Lord here, and being the true vine, if you are a branch that comes from this vine, there will be fruit. He says here in, in verse uh, 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, it doesn't say he leaves it alone. It says, it doesn't say he lets him stay It says he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the fruit which I have spoken, or the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. The end of verse 5. Without me, you can do nothing. There's guaranteed fruit in the Son. As a matter of fact, just a few more verses down the page there, down the column in verse 8, it says, My father, who's the husbandman, the one giving the, tending to the garden, tending to the vine, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You say, well, what do we do with this thing that it says in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Is that teaching someone that is really... A Christian can be unchristian. And we, we say, well, we know it can't reach 
we can't go there. It won't be going towards that conclusion because it won't agree with the rest of Scripture. For example, Romans 8, which says, nothing can separate a true Christian from the love of God he's enjoying right now. Nothing. You say, what do I do with this? Well, there's an empty chair in that room right now. Many believe that's a reference to Judas. He identified as if he was one of mine. His stick was stuck in with the real branches, but he had to be removed. He was not really one of us. I believe that that is totally consistent with the parables our Lord taught, the kingdom parables where wheat and tares grow together for a season. Where there's good fish and bad fish in the same net. Our Lord is saying that not only then, but even now, there are those who will get red in the face identifying with Jesus. I'm saved. I said the prayer. Get off my case, man. But at some point, time will reveal that they, it was a facade. It was a superficial identification. It wasn't real. Because if you truly are in the vine as a branch, there will be fruit. Not just little, but more. Not just more, but much. I like what Paul says in Philippians 1.11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's right. Well, there's a third reality that we, we, we see and it prepares us for this table. I am the true vine. It not only teaches us of the exclusivity of life in the Son and the guarantee of fruit in the Son, but thirdly, it teaches us the reality of vitality, of dependence on the Son. He says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. In the middle of verse 5, He who abides in me and I in him. What is this abiding? This speaks of, of a necessary resource and life-giving dependence on the Son. Abiding is not just a touch and go. Abiding is not the cell phone charger at Metro Airport at the gate where you're like, I need a refill, so I'm just going to connect for a little bit until I have to board. When we think of abide, when we think of dwelling, as John and Jesus are recording here, as John will write about much in his epistle as well, we are talking about a defining connection. John will say in 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. In 1 John 3, 24, he'll put it this way, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know this, that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And even earlier in his epistle, 1 John 2, 24, as for you, let that abiding you which you heard from the beginning if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. It's a constant, if I can borrow the advertisement, it's constant contact through which flow the resources you need, through which 
flows the possibility of you helping to multiply the number of branches through your life, of you persevering. This life, this fruit, this dependence that is in this phrase, I am the true vine. This is not merely about me. This is about we. This is what we have in common. These realities do not isolate and exalt us. They gather and humble us. Your stick's not any better than another person's stick. Neither is mine. These realities forever bury our go-to excuses for isolation, for cliques, for tribes within our CBC lobby and between our CBC family from Mondays through Saturdays. Because we tend to polarize, don't we, still? We don't like all the other branches. We only like ours and the ones that are most like ours. And so we give too much attention to different presentations from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have any room for different likes and preferences. We don't have patience with different abilities and disabilities. We pay too much attention to mailing addresses and neighborhoods, not enough to the importance of differences in culture and skin pigment. We pay a little too much respect to degrees, to income, to skill set. We don't like it if someone else has different dark baggage in their past than ours. Because ours can be forgiven. We say. We can get in squabbles over favorite speakers and podcast episodes. And we just have little toleration for quirks. But at the end of the day, we're just a bunch of sticks. Oh, we have life coursing through us as branches, but it's not our life. It's the life of the vine that courses, well, through everyone that's unlike us as well. Brothers and sisters, there's a point here for repentance. It would be appropriate. Puritan Thomas Brooks said, ah, talking about Christians and unity, ah, were their souls fully assured that God had loved them freely and received them graciously and justified them perfectly and pardoned them absolutely and would glorify them everlastingly, they could not but love where God loves, own where God owns, and embrace where God embraces and be one with everyone that is one with Jesus. Well, you know, as these 11 disciples in Jesus are walking through the night towards the Kidron Valley with the destination of the Mount of Olives rising in the darkness in front of them, the urgency and passion of Christ's out loud prayer now makes sense, doesn't it? In John chapter 17, he says, I do not ask, Father, on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word." that would be you, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. Well, we must move to the communion table now. How how does this phrase that Jesus uses to identify himself prepare us for this table? I am the true vine. Well, once again, every one of these phrases is going to teach us how to pray at this table. See, we're going to pray for three, three, uh, three things here. Thank you, Lord Jesus, my true vine, for producing me. My branch only exists because it came from the vine. John 1, verse 13, talking about true believers, John says they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Thank you, Lord, for your broken body and your shed blood and your victory over the grave because down the line it would produce me, your child. You took the initiative. You had mercy for me when I wasn't even looking. Thank you, Lord Jesus, my true vine for producing me. Number two, for pruning me, for pruning me. Thank you when I I bear fruit, you still rid me of stuff that's keeping me from bearing more fruit and much fruit. I like what the psalm writer says in Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. John will record in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 3.19, the words of Christ there saying, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, be zealous and repent. Lord, thank you for pruning me. And then one more prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, my true vine, for protecting me. As I abide in you, Lord, and you abide in me, the day will come when, as you prayed to the Father in John 17, 24, I will be with you in glory, and I'm going to see the glory that you had from before time began. I will see that. Maybe this table teaches us to pray with this newer nuance as we come to the table. Thank you, Lord Jesus, our true vine, for producing us, for pruning us, and for protecting us. These are the treasures of unity. This is what we have in common as a community of grace as we come to this table. You sang it. The second stanza of a song earlier in this service, Beneath the cross of Jesus, his family is my own. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children called by God. I am the true vine. You know what that means? It means this, that we, not just me, we thrive in the life of Jesus. This table brings us together because of what we have in common as branches in the true vine. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time to prepare our hearts for this table We come to you now, preparing our hearts, participating, giving our attention.
and for sure praying to our true vine and thanking him for producing us, pruning us, and protecting us.